Announcements before we get started this morning. Most of you have remembered by, by the way, quite excellently you've remembered. We're doing like a little donation gathering for Good News Mission. And you'll notice there's, there's Good News Mission uh, donation barrels. One on this side of the auditorium in the foyer and one on that side of the auditorium in the foyer. I think the one on this side is already full and overflowing. And this was the first real Sunday we're supposed to do that. So thank you. That was wonderful. And then so we need to fill that one up. If you can do that during the month of October, we'll keep doing that. And so if you'll bring a box of cereal, drop it in there. Uh, The mission would appreciate that. And the men from the mission, uh, children at the mission, all those people will appreciate your help. Uh, So we'll just, like I said, be doing that during the month of October. Uh, Coming up in November, we just had the big fall festival. How many of you got to be at the fall festival yesterday? Uh, I was really pleased, maybe you won't be happy with me when I say this, but I was really pleased that it was cool. It's supposed to be cool at a fall festival. You're supposed to be wearing a coat and a sweater. That's what fall festival, if, you, if it was hot, I don't know, it wouldn't have felt, anyway, it felt perfect for me. I, I hope you enjoyed that. It was, uh, as usual, tons of food and uh, a lot of fun. Uh, I did not, somebody asked me this morning, did I get in the bounce house? I did not get in the bounce house. Uh, somebody my size might ruin the bounce house, so I did not get in the bounce house. But it, it looked like a lot of fun. I didn't even get to ride on the uh, uh, the hay wagon kind of thing. That's a big. That's not my thing. That's Becky's thing. She. I don't know why she still loves the hay wagon, but thankfully for me, the line was so long. She didn't feel like we had any hope to get in the line, so I, I, that made me feel good. Plus, we had to leave a little early last night. Our granddaughter played in the sectional soccer game for her school. They won, by the way. Uh, and so that started at 7 o'clock, and so we had to leave and get to that. Yesterday was, <sighs> you guys have had uh, those kind of whirlwind weekends where you don't even know what you're doing anymore. You know, uh, we went Friday night to Missouri to see our, son, our grandson in a play. We came back Friday afternoon. We got back at 4 o'clock. The thing was at 4.15. We were here at about 6.15. We left. We got home last night at 10.30. I don't even know where I am anymore. Sometimes it just flies by like that. Uh, but it's going to be another busy uh, activity type time. Uh, coming up for our next big activity is November 17th, Friday, November 17th. That's our annual BYF uh, luncheon. We have a Thanksgiving luncheon. Uh, a lot of good fellowship. Uh, Diane Jenkins over there. Diane, wave at everybody. Diane, that's Diane. Diane's going to be in charge of that as far as the meal, I should say. And she will, if, if she, you still need, you'll need a lot of help then, right? We need a number is what we need, right? Right, the Friday before Thanksgiving. So uh, we'll have a sign-up sheet. We'll start doing that, mainly because we need to know how much food to prepare and, and what, how to set up and that sort of thing. Uh, so that's coming up real quick. Uh, a lot of stuff happening. Tonight there is a special business meeting. By the way, if you can be here tonight, you need to be here. There's something that's... Uh, there's an opportunity the church has that uh, you'll be very, very, very... If you like Faith Baptist Church, in fact, if you love Faith Baptist Church, you need to be here. If you like Faith Baptist Church, you still need to be here and check it out. So we'll talk about that tonight after the service. And then there's also tonight after the service a, uh, what do you call it? Gift card shower. Is that the right word? Gift card shower for uh, the Tuttles, uh, the younger Tuttles. And uh, they, they've uh, already been married, but they were married in... South Carolina. They were married, believe it or not, where I'm from, almost in the exact town where I was born, uh, just a few miles from there. And so uh, that's tonight after 
service after service is business meeting, after business meeting is that shower. So, yeah, anyway, read your bulletin. There's a lot of stuff, okay? Just, that, that'll help you out. Just read your bulletin. Now, you probably got, if you got a lesson this morning, you may think I, I got really confused because if you look at your lesson, it's actually a lesson from the book of Genesis. Uh, it should be, you should have a lesson with you that says war and peace on the top, and it should say Genesis chapter 14. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. Now, I'm not confused. Uh, some of you may remember about 12 to 13 years ago, I don't know the exact time, uh, right after, a couple years after I was here, we started, uh, we went back and we started in the book of Genesis and we went through uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, we went through Numbers, we went through Joshua, Judges, and we did a little bit of the Old Testament for a series for I don't know how many years that lasted, five, ten years. Uh, but we had started in the book of Genesis, and that's where this lesson is from. And I covered the issue from Hebrews chapter 7 in the book of Genesis. And so I've just reproduced that lesson for you. Uh, we'll look at that lesson in just a minute. But the concept is, uh, if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, we've talked about it before. I gave you this little outline. This is from the very first lesson in the book of Hebrews that I gave. Uh, the book, the, the Hebrews, the, the uh, writing of the book of Hebrews presents the Christian faith as a life superior to Judaism or all other religions. If you remember, I was telling, I told you when we started this, the book of Hebrews is definitely for Christians, but it's more for Jewish Christians than it is for anybody else. It's trying to convince those early New Testament Jews to set aside Judaism, that Judaism and all its, uh, and all of its uh, images and pictures has been fulfilled in Christ, and now things are better. There is a better uh, answer to, your, to the situation. And so uh, I outlined it like this. Uh, Christ, uh, when you look, go to chapters 1 through 4, Christ is presented there as a superior person. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the angels. We've already studied that if you've been in this class uh, for early on. So Christ is, uh, chapters 1 through 4, Christ is superior to the angels. When you get to chapters 7 through, through 10, we're going to look at Christ's uh, priesthood being superior to that at the to, to Aaron's priesthood. And so you're in that little section now. That's chapter 7 to chapter 10. When you get past chapter 10, uh, in the middle of chapter 10, until the end of the book, we're going to talk about Christ's sacrifice being superior to the Old Testament sacrifices and the tabernacle being superior, I mean, the, uh, 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 the church being superior to the tabernacle and blah, 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 blah. So you're in a little middle section right now, okay? And in the middle section, chapter 7 through 10, we're going to talk about this priesthood. And again, for, uh, for most of us, we don't need to be convinced. We don't need to be convinced that uh, Christ is superior to Old Testament Judaism, right? Uh, you know your Bible. You've studied the Old Testament. You've studied the New Testament. I don't need to convince you, but understand Hebrews wasn't written just to convince you. Hebrews was written to convince those, those uh, early uh, New Testament Jews who who's still struggling between the two, okay? And so that's why it's a little more confusing for some of us. Uh, you would read it and say, of course Christ is superior. Of course Christianity is superior to Old, uh, Old Testament Judaism. Of course what we have today is better than what they had today had then. Of course it's been fulfilled. We get it. Understand they were getting it. I can't say they got it, but they were some who got it. They were getting it. They were being convinced. Uh, but there are some at the same time, uh, if you remember back in, we studied through the book of Galatians, there were some at the same time were trying to draw the Jews back into some Old Testament practices like circumcision. Uh, and so there were a lot of things that they were pulling back into. And Paul again is trying to tell them, no, 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 you, you don't want to do that. This is better. Uh, if you want to look at an outline from chapter 7 to 10, uh, I'll have this for you next week. But uh, chapter 7, 
uh, talks about the, the priesthood of Christ being superior. Chapter 8 talks about uh, the fact that the covenant that Christ, the New Testament covenant, is better than the Old Testament. Uh, and chapter 9 talks about the, uh, the superior, we have a superior sanctuary. And chapter 10, 9 and 10 talk about we have a superior sacrifice. And so each one of those chapters, you're going to look at each one of those things. And again, for you, I probably don't have to convince you, but for the average Jew, they would need convincing. By the way, I haven't even noticed what's happening in Israel this morning. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, I don't want to be a prophet or anything, but whoa. You start attacking Israel, outright attacking Israel, I, I start looking for the rapture. <laughs> I don't know how you people think. I'm just like, okay, okay. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen, but uh, I know that that kind of a thing's supposed to happen, and I know a little bit about prophecy, and I, that kind of gets me on edge a little bit, but not in a bad way, right? I, if, you're, if you're, say, born-again Christian, that's not something you worry about. That may be something you want to get excited about, and that may be something that might push you in the area of evangelism if you have unsaved friends or loved ones or neighbors. Maybe it's time to get busy, Amen. Who knows how much time we have left. And again, I'm not saying Christ is coming today, but I'm saying Christ is coming and there's some things that are going to happen before that he comes and whew, that's kind of pushing the line a little bit. Anyway, uh, so uh, Hebrews chapter seven, look at Hebrews chapter seven real quick. I know I said Genesis, but I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter seven and you're, you're going to remember we picked up the name Melchizedek, Melchizedek in chapter five. We saw it again in chapter six, chapter seven. It's, that's all it's about is Melchizedek. Now, I will tell you this. Melchizedek is a mysterious rascal. I, I, I still struggle sometimes with this issue. I went to Bible college. I remember studying this in Bible college. Uh, after Bible college, I've taught uh, the Bible for now 45 years, 46 years. I don't know how long, but a while uh, since 1977 when I graduated. And I, this comes across every now and then. There's really only three places in the entire Bible that Melchizedek is mentioned. Genesis chapter 14, uh, Psalm 110, and then here in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. Mainly in chapter 7, but a little bit in five, chapter 5 and 6. And so I, I still struggle, I'm going to be honest with you, I still struggle a little bit with the concept of what I would call, or the Bible calls, the order of Melchizedek. The priest after the order of Melchizedek. And I'll tell you why in a minute, but that, 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 there's some things that aren't quite exactly clear to me. And so... Uh, when I get to a place in the scripture, just so you know how I teach, when I get to a place in the scripture where um, I can say at this point, this here is absolutely wrong. This could be right. This could be, this could be right. This could be wrong. Anywhere you're in between those parentheses, I'll give you room. Okay. I, I, I'll, I'll like, okay, I can see your point. I may be here. You may be here. But as long as we don't conflict with the truth of the scripture, I, I'm okay with where you are, okay? So I, I try not to be dogmatic on what I can't prove dogmatically. In other words, if I can't point to verse in Scripture and say this is why I say this, uh, then I'm not going to be dogmatic that you agree with me. Not a major, I don't think it's, I don't think we're talking about a major issue here, but maybe some, for some people it is. But anyway, uh, so when you look at chapter 7, Okay, when you look at chapter seven, he's, we go back to Melchizedek. Okay, uh, Hebrews chapter seven, verse one, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation, king of righteousness, the name 
Melchizedek means king of righteousness or king of peace. It actually means both. Uh, And after also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descendant, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now, I don't know how you read your Bible, but sometimes you'll, you'll be reading and all of a sudden you'll, something will pop up like this. Melchizedek pops up in chapter 5, he pops up again in chapter 6, and then there's an entire chapter about him in chapter 7. And you kind of have to go, okay, first question, right? Who is Melchizedek? And what was, what, what, not just who he is, but what did he do? What was his ministry? Well, to explain that, you have to go back in the Old Testament and start where it started. So go back to Genesis chapter 14. Go back to Genesis chapter 14. Now you can have your notes in front of you. Genesis chapter 14 starts with a story. An interesting story, by the way, because I don't know if you know this, but up to Genesis chapter 14, from the creation of man until Genesis 14, there are no wars or major conflicts mentioned in the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about personal conflicts. They were obviously personal conflicts, the first two children had a personal conflict, right? Cain and Abel. Uh, so there were personal conflicts, but there were no national conflicts. As far as I've read in the scripture, there were no battles, there were no kind of war. This is the first mention of war in the scripture or of any kind of major battle. And it's interesting because it's really a big battle. Now, when we talk about these different kings, there's, there's 10 different kings mentioned here. When we talk about these different kings, understand these were, these were more what we would consider as tribal kings, not nation kings. Okay, they, they thought of themselves as nations, but it's more like what we would call a tribal system, right? So this king over here ruled a certain area and had a certain group of people, and this king over here had a certain, and so they would have little conflicts. Well, this became a major conflict. In fact, if you're looking at your notes, you should have that in front of you, Genesis 14, War and Peace. Uh, I've already mentioned that's the first time that you'll, you'll see conflict. So in chapter 13, there was a conflict between Lot and Abraham. You remember about the herdsmen? Uh, about the water rights and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so now this chat battle comes up. Uh, Roman number one, first battle, four kings defeat the five kings. And I've listed them there for you if you want to go through each one of them. The, the main one you got to remember is a king called uh, Chedorlaomer. okay? And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. So from now on, I'm just going to call him Cheddar, okay? It'll make, trust me, I'm going to say the name a lot so you'll get used to it. That's the guy I'm talking about. He becomes a major player. There's another king on the other side. Look at the other side of that list. Uh, Bera, king of Sodom. Remember those two guys, okay? So out of all these guys, you're going to remember three, three of them. You're going to remember Cheddarhead. You're going to remember Bera. And of course, you're going to remember um, Melchizedek, right? So those are the three main players outside of Abraham and Lot. Those are the three main players in the thing. So what happens is, uh, in the first part, verses one through three, uh, a battle ensues. These four kings go against these five kings. And I'll make the story very short because it's just giving you background. Uh, the four kings led by Cheddar, they defeat the five kings. And out of the four kings, this guy Chetelomir, he is the, he's the big dog. Is that, is, you understand what I'm saying when I say that? So the four go against the five. The five are defeated. Uh, Chetelomir, he takes over as king of the kings, of the, of the four kings, and obviously king over all the five kings. So out of the nine kings, you got this, this one guy kind of ruling everything. That goes on for a little while. You go down to verse four, I think it is. And in verse four, the three other kings who are being led by Cheddar, right? They're being they don't like it. 
I don't, I, it lasts 13 years where he's in charge, right? And he is supreme over all of them. And they say, you know, that's enough of that. And, and that's basically what happens. Look at verse 4. 12 years they served Chedlamir, and in the 13th year they rebelled. It's like, okay, you helped us win, and we made you in charge, and now you're in charge. And I don't know what he was doing that got him upset, but they didn't like it. And so now there's another battle, and those guys go after him. Now, I don't know how long that battle lasted, but in the next verse it says the 14th year. So it wasn't very long months, a year at the most. But so he finally subdues those guys again. So he's back in charge, right? And so that's the second battle, if you're looking at your notes there. Uh, so five kings rebel, uh, rebel against the four uh, after that little to-do. Uh, go to the third battle. So go to the third battle. Next page, real fast. I, I, I'm not, I'm, this is just background, so you can read it all later. You can read the story later, but I'm just giving you some background. So the third battle, the four kings defeat the five again. The king of Elam was not about to sit idle and let hold, uh, the people hold uh, his, you know, his area slip out of his hands. He immediately gets forces and he prepares for war. So they, the battle, another battle ensues, okay? And that battle, uh, things change. Uh, there, well, I better read it because now it's going to get important. The first two battles, I'm not making much of them because as far as I can tell, the first two battles had very little, if anything, to do with Abraham or with Lot. They were in the area. Abraham was a little more out of the area, but Lot was in the area of Sodom. You know the story, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it did affect him to some degree, but it's not mentioned. Whatever effect it may have had is not mentioned until this third battle happens. You can pick that up in chapter, chapter 14, verse 5, the 14th year. Uh, he comes back and the, five, the, the kings are with him. And so he has this battle going on. Um, verse, and go down, drop down to verse 8. And there went out the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of uh, all these other kings come out. And they joined in battle with them uh, and with uh, Chedlamir, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of nations. All these guys are having this ma major battle. Verse 10. And the veil of Sodom was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they remained fled into the mountain. And when that happened, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their victuals and went away. And while they're running... They also take prisoners, and they took Lot, Abram's brother, Sodom, and, uh, I'm sorry, Lot, Abram's brother, son, who dwelled in Sodom and his goods, and departed. So as they're being, so, so to speak, defeated, they're being attacked, they retreat, and when they retreat, they grab everything they can grab, you know, to hide, and they grab not only food, but they grab servants and slaves and um, captives, so to speak. Lot happens to be among them. Now the story takes a new twist because now we're talking about Abraham and Lot. Well, now we're talking about God's people, not just some wicked kings out there shooting each other. And, you know, worldwide wars happen all the time. Sometimes they affect the nation's outcome and they get involved in the plan of God. And so that's what happens here. So look at your notes on page uh, 112 in that notes there. Uh, the third battle, the king of Elam was, uh, gets a little upset. Verse, uh, bold print there. In the 13th year, beginning of the, being weary of their situation, the five kings rebelled. They denied their tribute and attempted to shake off the yoke to receive uh, their ancient liberties or in, in their land. In the 14th year, after some pause and preparation, Chedlamir, in conjunction with his allies, sets himself to chastise and reduce the rebels since he could not have it otherwise to fetch his tribute from the point of the sword. In other words, you're going to rebel against me. I'm going to attack you. That's what happens. So now he's seen as he's again supreme over Syria, Babylon, as with utmost importance to Elam to keep the Jordan Valley free. 
and open on account of the trade. Okay, everybody understand the situation? You still with me so far? So you got all these battles going on, these wars that are literally not connected to anything until we see Abraham and Lot jump in. When that happens, now we have a problem. So when he comes in the area, look at the, top, uh, the part that's not in bold. When Chedlamir came in the area, he was not satisfied just to take back the cities of the five kings. In fact, the first thing he did was attack and subdue the entire surrounding nations and the cities before he began to war with the five rebellious kings. His list of victories is long and impressive, right? His uh, allies quickly defeated six other kingdoms or two other city-states uh, on the way to regaining their lost territory. Those other kingdoms briefly mentioned verses 5 and 7. We've kind of read through that. I'm not going to list all of them. Uh, next paragraph. After such resounding victories, one might think the five kings of the rebellion would be ready to quickly humble themselves before him and his confederates, but they find instead that they took offensive, uh, they took on the offensive and they joined battle with them. And the, so instead of his, his, his guys rebelled against him, the guys they had defeated earlier now said, hey, this is our chance, right? And so now they all come together against him. And now it gets really ugly. Now it's one against eight. Is that math right? Yes, one against eight. Okay, so the main reason, look at the next thing. The main reason for recording this incident is as it impinged on the life of Abraham. Uh, his nephew Lot was living in Sodom. He'd been taken captive. He found this coast. He found, uh, he found to his cost that the pleasant plain was not such a good place to live after all. Some of you remember the story of what happened? Abraham said to Lot, you choose which direction you want to go. Lot chose what he thought would be the best land, the pleasant plain. And he went towards Sodom and Abraham got the rest. Well, sometimes what you think is best isn't really best. Anybody ever found that out to be true? My way is the best way, and then you find out later, well, my way wasn't really the best way. Well, Lot's about to find that out. So anyway, uh, he, he's going to find it out many more direct ways than that. His wealth had been uh, taken, and he was being marched off in the direction from which he had first immigrated with his uncle. Uh, I think this is interesting. When Christians backslide and allow themselves to be ruled by worldly thoughts, God may use drastic means to, re, uh, to bring them back to their senses. You need to, if you didn't hear anything else I said this morning, you need to underline that sentence. Because uh, it's not going to play here. It's going to play when we get to chapter 12, too. When we talk about God's chastisement. Uh, read the sentence again. When Christians back, I'm at the bottom of page 112. When Christians backslide and allow themselves to be ruled by worldly thoughts, if you're really one of God's children, right? I mentioned this uh, in the last Wednesday night's message. If you're really one of God's children, God will chastise his children to bring them back to him. And Lot's about to find out that living life my way is not the best way, Right? And so uh, it's interesting to me that that's what happened. He shatters their peace in order that they might learn to not to put their trust in worldly goods. If everything, if everything in your life is going well because, solely because uh, you're doing good financially and everything's kind of going your way and you think I'm secure, you do understand uh, anything that can be bought can be taken, right? There, there's nothing, I, I said this a long time ago, there's nothing that you have that God can't quickly and supernaturally take from you. And by the way, this other side of that coin is also true. There's nothing that you don't have that God can't quickly and supernaturally provide for you. You agree with that? You understand that uh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a great financial planner. I do have financial plans. You know, we have some, uh, besides Social Security, we have some uh, IRAs and, and, and different uh, financial plans set up. 
And I, there's a tendency, uh, I just turned 67 this week, and so there's a tendency for me to look ahead and say, I'm setting this up. Uh, I'm not retiring anytime soon, by the way. In my late mid-70s somewhere, I might, I'm thinking about retirement, and I have a plan. You, you, I hope you understand that I at least understand that that's a, that's a plan that's a good plan, but I'm not counting on it. Because I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. Becky asked me the other day, we were talking about this and we were talking about finances and, you know, what we're trying to do and trying to set things up. And she said, you know, we don't even know because the plan is she retires at 70 and I retire sometimes 75 or older. And she said, we don't even know if we're going to make it to 70. Then what happens to this? I said, well, the kids get happy. So, I, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I know you would rather you'd rather have us than the money, right? I heard Carrie say amen, Michelle. <laughs> Michelle, I was just smiling like, well. <laughs> no, he's, I'm just kidding. Uh, you understand, we, we get that. And sometimes I think we forget. Uh, God, can, God can do uh, great and miraculous things for us, but he can also do great and miraculous things to us. And when you choose to disobey him, Understand, if you're really his child, he's not going to allow that without some kind of, in my opinion, some form of chastisement. I believe that. I, I've always believed that. Uh, some people will say, well, you, I think you're, you, know, you, you worry too much about God and you fear him too much. I don't think I fear him enough. I think our society has gone away from that, but I don't think I fear him enough. And I think sometimes we need to get back to that. That's another story. Okay, so now we have another battle. So Lot disappears and Abraham, now this is kind of a strange thing. Abraham decides, all right, that's it. I got to go get Lot. Now, now think what, what's happening here. Abraham, a tribesman, okay, a shepherd. He's, he said, this mighty king, Telomir, has defeated eight other kings and taken my son. I'm going to take my men and go get them. Logically, does that sound like a good plan? I mean, right off the I'm going to take my shepherds and I'm going to arm them and we're going to go after this military power and we're going to get our, my, my, my uh, actually nephew back, right? In all reasonableness, that does not sound like a smart thing to do. It sounds like, Abraham, you're about to get destroyed. But you've got to remember who Abraham is. And it kind of gives you, I don't have time to go into this this morning, but it kind of gives you a different picture of Abraham than maybe you've had before, you know? Uh, it's kind of interesting. Look at the top of your notes here, page 113. So Abraham hears the news. He finds out a little bit more about what's going on. Uh, so an escaped prisoner in the bold print there, an escaped prisoner came and told Abraham what happened. And for Abraham to hear that his brother was taken captive was to decide, uh, was to decide at once on his rescue. And how touching are the very words. When Abraham heard that his brother was taken, he armed his trained student, servants and he pursued them. Now, that's kind of interesting. Again, you know, the next sentence that's written there from Dr. Thomas's notes, there was no root of bitterness here. Have you ever thought about this? How most of us may have responded to this? Abraham said to Lot, Lot, choose which way you'll go. Lot, very obviously, chose the best of the land and said, I'm going to take this side, you take the other side, and left Abraham with the worst of the land. Then Lot gets in trouble. You know what a lot of New Testament Christians would have said? Well, he got what he deserved. Uh, he, he, decided to go to, he decided he'd go that direction and he got involved with the world's crowd and look at him now. Ha! 
You don't see that in Abraham. You know what Abraham says? I need to go rescue him. It's part of my job to look out for my brother. Ooh, I could, boy, I could go off on a tangent right now. Some of you know we started a, a, another ministry here in our church, Faith Recovery, a drug and alcohol addiction program. Uh, and some people look at people in those situations and say, well, they, they went that way on their own. That's, you know, they made a the mistake. They ruined their own lives. And that may all be true, but we still have a responsibility to them. Right? So I think that's kind of interesting, but keep reading. So Abraham now goes out. Look at verses 14. You're in chapter 14 of Genesis, verse 13 and 14. So then came out the one that escaped and told Abraham, or Abram, the Hebrew, uh, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, an Amorite, brother of Eskel, and a brother of Aner. And they were confederate with Abraham. These families who had been attacked were uh, in league with Abraham. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them to Dan. Now, uh, in case you haven't figured it out yet, again, I don't think this is, this doesn't sound like a good logical plan. He takes 318 men to this trained army, to attack this trained army. And so what happens? So in verse 15, now he divides his trained men. So I don't know if it's 150 and 168 I don't know how exactly that worked out, but he divides his men and he pursued after them unto Dan and he divided himself against them and his servants by night and smote them and pursued them to Hobah, which is in the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and again, and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. Okay, so, so all said and done. Battle, 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 battle. Lot is taken. Abraham says, nope, that's not happening. You don't attack our family. And so Abraham takes his 300 men and he goes and attacks Mr. Cheddar and he takes over. And not only does he attack him, not only does he, he, he uh, uh, win the battle, but he literally chases them out of the area. He chases them all the way back to Damascus, which is amazing because you're talking about tribal kings, right? They have no place in Damascus. If you chase them back to Damascus, they're going to fight. They're going to have to fight their way out of there. And so he chases them all the way back. And not only does he chase them all the way back, but he gets everything back. He gets all the goods back and he gets all the people back and he brings them all back. Okay, so you say, why did you tell us that whole long story? Well, that whole long story is where Melchizedek, poof, appears. And I don't know a better way to say it. That's exactly what happens. There is no mention uh, Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 14. We never hear this guy's name in the first part of the Old Testament. And then all of a sudden, he's not only just appears, but he appears like we should know who he is. Have you ever read that? It almost seems like you should know now Melchizedek. You're like, oh yeah, Melchizedek. Nope. He just, boom, there he is. And so all of a sudden, Melchizedek appears. So look at verse 17. So the king of Sodom, which uh, that's Bera, Right. Bera, the guy who'd been defeated, the guy who got whipped in the first round of fighting and got whipped in the second round of fighting and got whipped in the third round of fighting. Abraham comes and drives Chedilamir out and Bera now stands up and says, ha, we won. Have you ever met that guy? How many of you have met that guy? We won. You were on the sideline the whole time, dude. You lost everything until Abraham showed up. Who are you? So he comes in now. He, he comes back. He's the king of Sodom. And he went out to meet him after his return of the slaughter of Chedermere. And the kings that were with him, these other, remember the other five kings that got whipped earlier? Now they're all, they're all coming back. And here's the thing. 
they don't come back. Listen, listen carefully. They don't come back to Abraham and say, thank you. That's not what they do. You know what they do? They come back to Abraham demanding their rights. What? What? What do you mean demanding? They come back and say, look, here's how this is going to go, Abraham. You, you did this and you did that, but we get, we, get the, we get the people from the spoils. You keep the stuff, we keep the people. Okay, first of all, who, what? Who are you to be demanding anything? Who are you to be talking like that? So verse 18, so uh, he, he goes out to meet him after the slaughter, which is the Valley of Sheba and the Kingsdale. Uh, hang, before we get to Melchizedek, jump over. I want you to see what they said. Uh, verse 21. Here's what they told Abraham, verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abraham said to the, goods, the king of Sodom, I have lift up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. By the way, it's interesting where he gets this title. You'll see that in a minute. That I will not take from a thread, even a sewer latchet, that I will not take anything to design, lest thou should say I have made Abraham rich. Again, Abraham kind of fools me. If I'm Abraham... And I come in and you five guys got whipped not once, not twice, but three times. And I came in and I saved your bacon. And you come over to me and say, now, here's what you're going to do. I would have said, get lost, dummy. You're a loser. Get out. I mean, I, I, I know my nature. I would have been like, who do you think you are coming up in here? I just defeated the guy who defeated you three times. And I've run him out of the country. You need to be quiet and listen to me. Abraham doesn't do that. Abraham doesn't do anything. Abraham says, you know what? I didn't come here for money and I didn't come here for goods and I didn't come here for slaves. I came here in the name of the Lord and the Lord walked this battle and I'll not take anything from it. He lets him have it all. The booty, the people, whatever, you take it. That's interesting. So what caused that in Abraham? Now we're getting to Melchizedek, okay? Well, I'm, gonna run. I'm not gonna make this. Okay, you just hang on to the notes. We'll get, we'll get there. All right, so now... Now go back. So verse 17, that's what he comes and he, he makes this request to Abraham. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, poof, right out of nowhere, right? And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the most high God. Now, anybody knows the Old Testament, why does that seem out of place? The priest of the most high God. Where did the priesthood come from? What tribe? Levi. Is Levi alive? <laughs> no. How was there a priest before Levi was born who was the first, uh, 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 through Aaron? How did that happen? What, what happened here? What, what's going on? Who is this guy and where does he come from? Uh, if you go back to Hebrews, we just read, he has no record of his birth. We have no record of his ancestry. We have no record. Now that's going to play into where, which way you go on who Melchizedek is. Okay. Uh, so out of nowhere, Melchizedek appears and he brings an offering. It's interesting. It's interesting. Um, the king of Gomorrah comes and demands stuff. Melchizedek, the king of Salem comes and gives stuff. Okay, keep, keep that in mind as we go along in the story, okay? So this king who did nothing comes and demands it. This king who, who eventually does something gives. 
Everybody, everybody find, kind of following along with me. Some of you are way ahead of me already. Okay, so Melchizedek, he brought forth, and he was a priest of the Most High God. Verse 19, and he blessed him. He blessed Abram. And he said, blessed be Abram the, the, uh, of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And I think it's interesting, by the way, that he says that to Abram, right? He says, God is a possessor, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And so when Abram goes back now to talk to the king of Sodom, uh, yeah, the king of Sodom, Bera, who's demanding all this stuff, he says the same phrase. He learns a phrase from who? He learned that phrase from Melchizedek, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. You see it, we, we read it there in verse 21, isn't it? Yeah, uh, no, verse 22. Uh, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And so verse 20, go back again. So he blessed the most high God, delivered thine enemies in thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. So now Abraham tithes a tenth of what he gained. That's the only thing he kept. And he really didn't technically keep that because he only kept it to give it to Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek who's getting these spoils? And why is he giving him a tenth? And by the way, there's a lot of stuff in here that we could hit on. And I'm not going to try to hit it all on, but tithes, what's unusual about that? That law has not been invented yet. Right? There, there, is no, there is no Hebrew law, there is no Levitical law, there's no Hebrew law that says you should be tithing. That comes later. So Abraham's tithing before there was a tithe because tithe is not a law, tithe is a gift. There was a tithe before the law and there was a tithe after the law. Right? This We'll talk a little bit about that again next week. But so you, he, he gives Melchizedek. So when you get to this chapter, when you finish this chapter, I know we're, we're in Genesis. When you finish this chapter, it just stops. Uh, look how it ends here. Verse 20, uh, 21. So the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons uh, and take the goods. Right. And he goes through that whole thing. And then when you go all the way down to verse 24, save only that which the young men have eaten. He says, that's the only thing we're going to keep. And the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. And, you see, and I would think, it, if I'm a reasonable person, I would think when I get to verse 15, he's going to tell me what happens to Melchizedek, right? How many of you noticed that it just, as quickly as Melchizedek appears in Genesis 14, it's kind of like, boop, there's Melchizedek. He brings the bread and wine. Uh, he worships God. He ties to Melchizedek. That's it. You say, you said all that. Just a, I, I said all that because I want you to see how quickly he appears and how quickly he, he disappears. And again, I think that plays into who he may be. And we'll talk about that as we go along. I'm not going to get to it today, but it's interesting. Now, here's another thing. So about, as far as I can tell, about 2,000 years of history has happened before, poof, there's Melchizedek. Guess how long it is before you hear anything about him again? That's in Genesis. You go Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, all the way through. How many of you know how many times he is mentioned from Genesis to Matthew? Once more. About a thousand years later, and another thousand years goes by, we don't hear anything. We, we introduce this guy really quick. Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, takes the offering from... Um, Abraham, by the way, I don't know where he took the offering to. Salem, we assume, means it's a pre-name uh, for Jerusalem, okay? And I think that's probably correct. Um, but what? So jump over to, to uh, 
um, Psalm chapter 110. Psalm 110. So we get another mention. We'll, we'll get that this morning, and then we'll get to the actual lesson of Hebrews chapter 7, because you've got to have a little bit of background to get to Hebrews chapter 7, okay? Because Hebrews chapter 7 is kind of just like what you just read. Poof, there he is. You're reading through the Psalms, you get to chapter 110. Poof, there he is. Not much is said. Boom. You get to chapter 5 in Hebrews. Poof, there he is. Chapter 6, I mentioned chapter 7, a lot about him, uh, a lot about, uh, said about him, but not in a lot of detail. And so when you get through with this lesson, when I finish this today and we finish it next week, you're probably still going to be looking at me and say, I don't completely understand. That's okay. Neither do I. But there's some interesting things we're going to look at now that you've got the background. Okay, so look at Psalm 110. Um, If you're looking in your notes, I'm way ahead of myself here. I wish I had more time to do this. And uh, I guess I do. I can do anything I want to as long as I want to. Right? Uh, Melchizedek's first appearance. Go to page 115. We kind of covered that, but go to page 115. Uh, Notice a couple things, by the way, on page 115 that you're going to have to connect. I'm out of time, aren't I? That you're going to have to connect. Let me just say this. King of Salem, Melchizedek means what? Not King of Salem. It means King of Righteousness and King of Peace. Uh, We don't have time to get to 110. I just noticed the time. King of Righteousness, King of Peace you read Psalm 110 for yourself, what it says about him. It's an unusual title, by the way, for a king. King of righteousness and, and king of peace. There are two things in here we're going to look at. And both of those are mentioned again in Psalm 110. And both of those are mentioned again in Hebrews. And both of those are key to who he is. Everybody curious now? Did I confuse you enough? Good. Maybe you'll come back next week. Let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord, we pray that you'll help us to understand the scriptures regardless of uh, how we interpret them, but more uh, what the scripture tells us. I pray that as we look through the life uh, or the story of Melchizedek, that all in all, Lord, we'll see Jesus Christ. I think that's, that's the obvious person who we're talking about, whether that's a Christophany, an early appearance of Christ, whether that's a uh, personification of who Christ is, it really doesn't matter. As long as we point, we're pointed to Christ and for his sacrifice on the cross, who really is the king of righteousness and who really is the king of peace. I pray that you'll work in our hearts and lives and bless the message to come. Be with our pastor as he speaks. We ask it in Jesus' name. All right, you are dismissed.